City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. Okay, City Limits, and we're on the uh, third Wednesday of the month. It's there for our housing day, and we're going to have quite a lot on housing today. Shane McGrath from Housing with the Ace Action Group is going to be on the line at one point. Um, we've got, also got Howard Morosi from Friends of Public Housing, and we're also going to be looking, of course, at the lockdown of the public housing blocks. And Meg, there's some people coming in about that as well. That's right. Um, Daniel Dadich from the Vic Socialist is going to come in and join us. He's not a resident of the housing estates, but he was part of an online forum uh, that the Vic Socialists organised to share the voices of residents. Obviously, they've had a lot of demands on their time and a lot of demands for a comment. And so we're going to have a chat with Daniel and Karina and I actually attended that forum online as well. It was really interesting and some very, yeah, um, thoughtful responses from residents. Oh, we'll get to that shortly then. Okay, look, I'm just going to pour a bit of tea and tell people that you are Meg Kimber, I'm Kevin Healy, Karina's there pressing the buttons and that's uh, City Limits off and gone. Before we get to that, just a couple of things. An item from last week where we interviewed Julia mm. about the proposal to put a gas plant, an LNG mm. gas plant at Crib Point Hastings on Western Port and the dangers mm. it involved. Just an interesting point about that because AGL itself claims that it has a a zero emissions policy by 2050, but it announced last week also that it intends to keep running its coal-fired power stations until 2048. So I would have thought mm. 2048, 2050 doesn't make a big difference. And one of those is Loyang, which is such a filthy brown coal power station, but they're going to run that till 2048. Mm. So that's, that's a real commitment to the environment. But also within a day or so of the interview we did with Julia, an item came out from a, a report from one of the world energy bodies that, in fact, liquefied natural gas was people were stopping investing in it because it was now unable to compete with the massive spurt in renewables. And so mm. even from a capitalist viewpoint, from the company's viewpoint, it would seem that spending billions investing in this now to open in two or three years would be a very bad capitalist investment in itself, even if we support capitalism. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of reasons other than the massive danger to the environment or what will happen to the environment to not go ahead with it. Because clearly, as this body says, liquefied natural gas is going to become mm. less and less an economic event. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Capitalism doesn't, capitalism doesn't even make sense to itself most of the time, as far as I can tell. Like, so it's a little no, bit odd. But no. I, I do, on that point, I did put in a submission, as Julia was talking about, you can just do it online. Yeah, and it's really simple. So if anyone was thinking about it, initially I was like, oh, I don't know what to say. But at the website, I think it's Save Western Port Bay, they have like all of, all the details of, of why they think it's a bad idea and you can put in the ones that you think are most important and and just click submit and then that goes to consideration there. Yeah. Oh, good on you. I think the group's called Save, Save Western Port. Yeah, Save Western Port, isn't it? Thanks, Kevin. That's all right. The, uh, the, another, another interesting item this week that came out 
was that they found traces of coronavirus in Italy going back to some time wow. last year. And a report from Oxford University says that it may have been dormant across the world and emerged when environmental conditions were right for it to thrive. Mm. And they say, a bloke called Tom Jefferson, who's the senior associate tutor, he says Spanish virologists announced they had found traces of COVID in samples of wastewater collected in March 2019, nine months before the disease was seen wow. in China. Italian scientists have also found evidence of the virus in sewage samples in Milan and Turin from mid-December, many weeks before. And Jefferson says he believes many viruses lie dormant throughout the globe and emerge when conditions mm. are favourable. It also means they can vanish as quickly as they arrive. Where did SARS-1 go? It just disappeared, he said. So we have to think about these things. We need to start researching the ecology of the virus, understanding how it originates and mutates. We may be seeing a dormant virus that has been activated by environmental conditions. There was a case in the Falkland Islands in early February. Now, where did that come mm. from? And it goes on, but it makes the point, because with Trump running around saying it's the Chinese virus and using it as a racist thing, it's an interesting development. That is interesting. I mean, I guess it makes sense. I don't know whether SARS just went away. I think it's just that they managed to kind of eradicate it. But maybe I think it's just lying around somewhere probably. Yeah, who knows about that? Yes, <laughs> yeah. right. I'm not yeah. sure. It's troubling to say it just went away, but... Yeah, I, it is interesting. I, I'm sure I've I've heard just sort of anecdotally people saying, oh, I feel like people's feeling like they maybe had coronavirus, like, you know, in January or December. But, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Hey, um, Kevin, I had something about, you know, since we're talking about privatisation a lot on this show. We do indeed. Yeah, I was reading the National Tertiary Education Union's publication and um, the changes to education and the funding of universities that's recently been announced, which of course is very skewed against creative arts and humanities and things like that. So basically, basically defunding certain university degrees. So the NTEU did an analysis and they found that I think it was for a creative arts degree, the government is contributing 7% of the amount of what it costs to deliver that. And so that means that the student is paying 93%, which is basically, mm. as I said in the publication, it's basically a private degree. Like you're at that point, you're basically a private citizen paying yep. 93% for your degree. Like that 7% is almost just nominal. So effectively privatising certain degrees at public universities in Australia. It's a long way from the 70s when tertiary education was made free, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, yeah. it's... Uh... It's a major problem and, of course, it's a major problem because they're also attacking areas that often are the best areas for a real broad education. So Absolutely. Yeah, there's been so many cuts on, on universities in terms of just targeting areas that might be critical to, to governments. So, mm. yeah. We're also seeing a situation here in Victoria at the moment where the government's urging more and more people to go to TAFE and offering free TAFE, mm. but it's cutting funds for the TAFE sector. So there was even stories last week that some TAFE colleges could go under financially and mm -hmm. the government had to come out and promise them it will, it will keep them at least fluid and going yep. until sometime next year. So cuts all over the place are having a massive effect, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, because cuts on TAFE are very damaging because not everybody wants to or can go to university, especially when they keep on putting the prices up. And TAFE is one of the only places people get a, an affordable education vocationally or, or otherwise yeah it's very concerning 
Yeah, so it is indeed very concerning, mm. particularly if you're a student having to pay all that money. Yeah. There's a bit of controversy taking place for the last couple of weeks about AMP Capital. AMP, of course, came out very badly from the Finance Royal Commission, mm. and they've got an offshoot, AMP Capital, and they recently appointed a bloke called Bo Pahari, B-O-E, and his second name, P-A-H-A-R-I, as chief mm. executive, and it's caused a real controversy because they forked out an enormous amount of money, half a million, I think, to pay a sexual harassment claim against him by one of his, and they keep using the term, women's subordinates, which is a pretty nasty Whoa. term. But uh, a few years ago, none the, it was 2017, in fact, when that happened, and yet he was appointed by the AMP board to be the chief executive of AMP Capital, and there's quite a carry on about it that uh, the, the sexual harassment should have been taken into account, of course, yeah. and it's blowing up. But last week, the chairperson of the capital mob, AMP Capital, John Fraser, who's an ex-head of Treasury, came out and said he was, a, he was promoted because, quote, he made a lot of money for the company and his employees. Wow. So that made it okay. And he says the, the board was unanimous about appointing him because of his track record. So one assumes the track record they considered was the making a lot of money and not the sexual harassment. Yes. But it's it's ongoing. And in fact, this week, and already in the Financial Review, the chief executive of the company itself has been forced to uh, come out and keep defending it while saying it didn't go to his own culture, his own things. I've, <laughs> I've heard a lot of personal... So personally, professionally, by a long shot, if I look at the 30 years that I have worked, it's probably the most challenging situation I've faced. It's been a tough week, he said. Poor guy. Yeah, really tough. Yes, that's right. But he did say that, you know, he, he doesn't support sexual harassment at all, of course, but he didn't. Oh, but he did say also that the appointment should should not change because it was made for the right reasons, which apparently weren't about sexual harassment. Oh, wonderful. Um, that's, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> yeah, Kevin, our first guest is here. Oh, well, let's, let's move on to the first guest. We won't even take a break because we've got a few guests today, so we'll, we'll have a break after this guest. And uh, you can introduce the guest, Meek. All right, and so we're joined by Daniel Dadich and also by Scott, who is a resident of one of the housing estates. And Daniel is a member of Vic Socialists and the candidate for Deputy Lord Mayor. Thanks to you both for joining us. Can we start with what was happening in the housing estate in terms of sanitation and information for residents before the detention order was um, announced? Yep, no worries. I can start there. So I guess you really have to look back to March and what was happening before March as well when, when Melbourne was first put into or what we are seeing at the moment, which is a stage three lockdowns. It was plain to everybody here that what actually needed to happen was, well, there needed to be more sanitation in the building, there needed to be more money, more cleaning, but it's not what happened on the ground here. Like, we saw one thorough cleaning of the corridors back in March at the start of the, the lockdown, and then we saw really what was a what we have been seeing recently is a decline in cleaning of the corridors. When I first moved into this building here, the corridors used to have a cleaner come up and clean them every day. And that's fallen down to twice a week if we're lucky. And sometimes it's just a cleaning cart rocking up in a corridor. Nothing is actually done and the, corridor, the cleaning cart moves on. Yeah, so in those sort of conditions, it sort of created a bit of a 
a lot of anxiety amongst the residents here because you know you're seeing every day what the potential of this virus is and we know what conditions we are living in so there was requests where people were calling up DHSS asking for things to be done there were campaign groups and groups of residents asking the same things but nothing happened there so as far as information before the lockdown basically that's the only information we had before the lockdown that we live in a, you know in a, in a dangerous building in a with, with a spike in coronavirus and then suddenly you know anxiety levels go up but residents themselves have been very careful you generally socially distancing so mm. thank you scott did you have anything to add on that daniel yeah, I just wanted to sort of frame this in public housing in general. So there's like been the massive neoliberal drive to reduce public housing, um, resulting in like Victoria being the worst in the entire country, where 2.3% below the national average for public housing, which means thousands and thousands of homes not being built or set aside. There's 80,000 people on the waiting list for public housing, 25,000 of which are kids. And because there's no money going in, it just means in the government's own words, there's like serious deterioration happening in a lot of the houses. And so that leads to some of the things like the overcrowding, transfers aren't happening to larger accommodation. And, you know, some of the speakers before were saying the repairs on things like lifts weren't happening, which means that residents are getting crowded more into like the one operating lift that's happening, going up and down between floors. And as Scott pointed out, you know, the cleaning and hand sanitizer um, wasn't readily available as well. And it all ties in with the neglect, which the government then turns around and says, you know, these places are, aren't being looked after, they're deteriorating, so we need to knock them down and build new places, and then that gets sold off to private developers, and then the private developers are told to only put a small percentage aside for public housing, but at a much smaller capacity. So smaller accommodation, meaning residents can't move back in. So larger households are um, being forced to move out. Can I ask, Scott, since the COVID-19 broke out, the cleaning, you said the cleaning was not as much as when you first moved in, but were the cleaners themselves given protective equipment to do the job? In the last week, in the hard lockdown, yes. But before then, it really was just business as usual for the, the cleaners here in the building. And it is a case that there's not enough cleaners really to get through the entire building. So I don't blame the cleaners themselves, of course. Mm. But well, that kind of leads into um, something else that we were going to ask a little bit later, but in terms of protective equipment and I don't know what the situation is with the cleaners, how they're employed or whether it's a subcontracting situation, but one of the things we did want to touch on was about the reports in the age that security guards from the quarantine hotels were also stationed at the housing estates and a uh, similar situation in terms of inadequate protective equipment, inadequate training and and an issue with subcontracting. Would any of either of you like to comment on that? Yeah, so I've been doing a bit of research about this recently. And, um, you know, the Andrews government gave out three companies to contract to look after the security guards at the quarantine hotels. And then those companies, uh, some of them in turn, went and um, hired subcontractors to save money on things like sick leave, annual leave, super, and the training. And a lot of the people that the subcontracting companies hire are international students. They pay $1,700 for a license, um, security license. But then a lot of them can't find jobs because of the visa conditions they've got. They can only work 40 hours a fortnight and so won't get hired by a lot of the companies. But subcontractors will give them the work. But it's at a very decreased pay, so way below the legal amount. Some people are getting paid $13 an hour. 
um, as security guards for these subcontractors. So the training that they were provided um, was given by like a car park manager, by one of the subcontracting firms. They were barely given any PPE, one pair of gloves, one mask for an entire day. One of the sites had expired hand sanitizer. And one of the subcontractors promised that there'd be 50 guards on site at one of the quarantine hotels, but then cut that number down to 12 just to save money on that. So because the security guards were also getting paid so little, a lot of them were working second jobs, Uber driving and things like that, which could have led uh, potentially to the spread of um, the coronavirus as well. And then it turned out last week, we found out that one of the subcontracting companies also had the contract at the um, housing estates. Um, you know, some of their workers were potentially working both sites. And we found that um, through some of the whistleblowers, the subcontracting security staff were saying that if they approached a manager and said, you know, someone's tested positive at this site or I'm feeling unwell, should I go get tested? And the managers were saying, no, you shouldn't because that means you've got to self-quarantine for a couple of days and you can't work and we don't want that. And if there are a few shifts, it turned out that some of the subcontractors were then saying, look, you've been accepting more shifts. You've been working more than a 40 hours a fortnight. We can report you to the immigration department that's going to affect your visa, forcing the security guards to be working at, you know, wherever basically the bosses wanted them to. Wow. That's very concerning. And for context, I understand that every other state in Australia had the quarantine hotels security basically managed by police, from what I understand. Yeah, I think so. And even now, like we're moving towards, uh, I think they're getting like ex or current like prison staff and stuff like that to do it at like $54 an hour. Right. So you can see the massive differences happening. Yes. So, Scott, can you tell us about what happened when the detention order and the police uh, arrived at the estates? Well, my own personal experience is that I was just, I was sitting down pretty much where I was here, having a break from the kids. And yeah, my telephone rang and my father was on the other end saying, you really should turn on the news. They're talking about your building. And he says, they're not going to let you leave. And then I looked out the window here beside me and the whole grounds were already being overtaken by police. So that was my introduction to being on hard lockdown, which is appalling. I can imagine there are plenty of other residents in the building who suffered a lot more than I did, who actually have history of, like they come from refugees coming through the Australian detention system for fleeing oppressive regimes and stuff like that and uh, there is one one of my neighbors who she wasn't aware what was going on she's Somali and so she was just trying to leave the building to go buy some food for her kids and the police were not letting her pass and English being her second language she didn't understand what was going on so just like using the police in the Flemington flats is always going to be problematic and in general I think it is completely appalling. The question really has to be like uh, what does what did police have to do with the health crisis? Like I've heard it tried to be justified that the residents will flee but the way that it was handled well people were doing exactly that. All I hear is to see is a police setting up barricades. There were people who actually left their homes as a result of that because of that past experience so they're not going to stick around because mm. nobody's talked to them they just suddenly see the state the police moving in taking over and then you got the premier saying you will not be allowed to leave your building like yeah i'm, I'm pretty sure this created the potential for the virus spreading out of the buildings instead of a you know a informed response where you would be you know, open communication 
saying, well, we have a health crisis in the buildings. We want to be able to get on top of this before it gets out of hand. And I'm sure people would have responded much better to that situation without the stress, without the trauma. So. And surely people should have been given the time to at least stock up on what they needed for that period. Yeah, I agree. It's exactly what should have happened, as I said. As Daniel Andrews said on the television, when I watched it later, effective immediately. And it really was effective immediately. Police took over the grounds during that press conference. There was no time to leave the building. People were stopped at the doors by police who were trying to do just that. I hung up from my father and said, look, well, I should go see if I can go buy some food because you know, we're running out of some basic essentials here, like bananas, milk, cheese and such. But no, you couldn't get out of the building. Mm. And I think someone mentioned in the forum that Vic Socialists organised about it happened on a weekend and that's usually when people do, um, they might do a shop for a whole week and then go back out on, on the weekend and do the next shop for the whole week. So it sounds like a lot of people were really caught unprepared and without enough information to prepare themselves, which is a very counterproductive way of, of approaching this and very presumptuous to think that just because people live in a housing estate that they're not going to take into consideration the health of each other and, and the things that they need to do, which is actually opposite to what has actually happened and what has been happening. Hey, one of my mates was supposed to pick up medication Saturday night and then got refused. The cops wouldn't let her, let her out of the building. Yeah. That was one of my stories as well, is trying to get my own medication because I had just run out of my glaucoma meds and I couldn't leave the building. And through trying to get them through the department of CHHS, it took 54 hours before the uh, glaucoma medication arrived. So I went, I went three nights without my glaucoma meds. And that could be a disaster. Well, people with more serious health problems than my own, definitely. And, yeah, if my eye pressures go up, then they're damaging my optic nerves. So, yeah, it's not good. Yeah. And on that point, how long did it take for food to start arriving and more particularly culturally appropriate food for certain people, you know, various people in the, in the blocks? Well, there was no communication with residents. Like, if I was planning to do something like that, I mean having somebody who communicated with the residents saying, okay, so who's living in your house? Do they have any special requirements? Like there are diabetics living in the building. There are people who are like myself who are gluten intolerant. There are not just cultural requirements, but also medical requirements. And there was no communication mm. whatsoever. And then, well, there was no, I actually don't think the government provided any food during the five days at all. It was community services and groups like the Trades Hall who stepped up and filled in that gap. As far as I can see, they might have been organised or put by the government, but it wasn't the government themselves providing food there. There was that one group which apparently provided bushfire relief. There was also the very first lot of food that were given. They were, I believe it was on Channel 7, that a lot of, a lot of the food was past its expired date, being given to residents. So that was on the first day. But then the major, majority experience, like in the, my building, building 130 in the Flemington estate here. We didn't see any food delivered to our door in the first two days. It wasn't until the night of the third day after 50, sorry, 52 hours, we had a, a box delivered to our door. Before that, there was food organised by the local mosque, 
and that food had managed to get into the building. But it was the same time that we were given our detention directives where the police knocked on our door on the second night, gave us our detention directives. So that was the first official communication that we had with the state police or with the government was on the second night. And they, they gave me a mask and said, if you're hungry, there's, there's some food down in the foyer downstairs. And so I said, what do you mean? It's like, yeah, there's food in the foyer. We're not bringing it up. So I had to go into the elevator. I had to wait until there was space to the elevator because, you know, people were going down. and go down, like, in the midst of a health crisis in the buildings, go into the elevator, go downstairs, and there was tubs of curry and rice sort of just dumped just in the foyer on a help-yourself basis. So where you're told there's COVID-19 in the building, going down to the foyer, like, you don't know who's been there before you. Touched, touched anything, you know, it was just like it's a totally ridiculous situation. There were people walking around the building without face masks because nothing had been provided to every apartment as well. People were still wandering around in confusion and everything else. Mm. And how many people are in the building? Do you think they were telling everybody that food was done in the foyer? So that happened at the same time as they were handing out their detention directive. So I think police were going door to door at that stage. Yeah. So I think they were pretty much all told in that same same time frame, yeah. Yeah. So that I think, yeah, that sort of covers like the lack of notice, the heavy police presence. Both of those things have a hugely detrimental effect on, on residents and have a lot of presumptions around them about how people will behave. And it also sounds like it sounds like the police deployment happened um, before the real paperwork and the real considerations of what it actually meant and, and informing residents. So it sounds like a very hurried decision from the sound of it. Community groups you mentioned self-organised to provide a lot of information and supplies to people, but there have been reports that those community groups had difficulty actually get, getting those supplies and getting that information to residents. Has that been your experience? You know, as I said, yeah. So I heard reports that there were plenty of people who couldn't get through the foyer because it dif- depending on the building you're in, the police were taking it a different line. In, in our building. Initially, the food was just dumped in the foyer, as I said, often in boxes on the floor as well, mm. just spread across the floor on a help-yourself basis. There were some young guys in the local mosque who were going door-to-door, handing out curry at one stage. I think that was on the second night. Yeah, it wasn't until the third day that we actually got a supply of edible food delivered to our door on the night of the third day. So, again, over 50 hours before we saw that. Mm. Peter Khalil, who's a quite conservative Labor, federal Labor MP, member for Wills, but he grew up in public housing himself, and even though it's a Labor government in Victoria, he said it was upsetting and concerning that the most socioeconomic disadvantaged and vulnerable people were facing the harshest restrictions. So, you know, I think that brings us to the point that they would never do this if it wasn't a public housing estate. They wouldn't go to a private a private apartment block in Turak if there was COVID in there and lock people up the way they locked up people here. It was, um, it, it's quite um, a stigmatisation, really, of public housing, isn't it? Completely. Definitely. And, like, from Victorian socialist point of view as well, like, we are really outraged at the response of this. There should have been healthcare workers um, going in, not the police. You know, as Scott said, a lot of the residents, they've got a history of torture and trauma, fleeing from oppressive states, and then moving with the cops with zero notice um, just triggers people, really. So... There's a whole bunch of things that we'd like to be seen done. The police should have been removed from the start, but also we're calling for like no more sell-offs of public uh, land. The government's making like major money out of this instead of putting money back into 
accommodation for people that actually need it. So we need a lot more money being invested into that. And it's pretty easy to be done. Like we're calling for all developments over four stories to set aside 20% for public housing. And another thing that I'll just bring up is like Victorian Building Authority. They're the regulators and they only inspect 2% of new buildings. And because the dodgy contractors know this, because they're so underfunded, then they cut as many corners as they can, knowing that it's unlikely they'll be found out. And that just leads to the deterioration of accommodation over time. So you want to see them having more funding as well so that um, Mm. it ensures more quality accommodations being built. Yeah, that's very similar to the kind of things we discussed on City Limits about public housing. So, yeah, good to hear those demands. And um, we will have to wind up, unfortunately. Um, We have our next guest coming in. Thank you so much, Scott, and thank you, Daniel, for coming in. Thank you, especially, Scott, for talking about your personal experience. I really appreciate it. No problem. Yeah, thanks to both of you. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thank you. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mulbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. All right, back on City Limits, and we've got Shane McGrath from the Housing with the Aged Action Group on the line. And Shane, we've just had a discussion about the situation in the blocks that were blocked, but um, your comment from your point of view? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think it's great that you've uh, had a resident on the show to talk about that. Obviously, it's been the biggest news in um, housing over the last week or or two in Victoria. I was really proud personally that the Australian Services Union, which is the union I'm a member of, um, put out a statement condemning the, the Victorian government and the police for this sort of outrageous act of, of racist class violence against public housing residents. That's, that's my wording, not the union, but a pretty strong <laughs> statement condemning them uh, when I think uh, some of us saw the union movement as being a little too, too quick and comfortable to line up behind Daniel Andrews in this state. I think the United Workers Union also put out a statement condemning it. So... Uh, very happy as a as a delegate and union member to see some unions coming out against you know this outrageous over policing and the the use of police to try and manage public health issues. And on that connection, of course, the trades hall also came to the rescue and provided a lot of food, etc. So the unions played a key role. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the unions had raised like well over a hundred thousand dollars on the first night of that lockdown. You know, to their credit, and were distributing those distributing meals and things like that. I think a lot of the residents had had questions about why the unions were so quickly, why Trades Hall was so quickly prepared to organise that fundraiser um, when, you know, residents and police and, uh, you know, support organisations really had no notice about the the lockdowns Mm. and things. But yeah, I, I mean, absolutely credit to, in particular, to the hundreds or thousands of grassroots union members who donated to make sure that 
um, residents would have what they needed. But it did it did look interesting in terms of like no no condemnation of that approach from mm. Trades Hall and basically support for trades. And there was some residents' demands, which are still, as far as I know, of somewhat unknown origin. But some of the demand, one of the demands was that the the funding that Trades Hall had collected be distributed to residents, which sort of put into question whether it, how it had actually been like moving through into into the estates. Yeah, I think there's. I guess there's some questions about the the transparency and accountability of exactly where that money is going, and of, of course the residents should be receiving the benefit of it. But yeah, I mean the Andrews government approach of of consistently trying to use the police to to deal with these public housing issues throughout the crisis. Well, not no, sorry, not throughout the crisis. Whenever there's whenever there's problems in working class areas, whenever there's problems in suburbs that are dominated by migrant communities, that's when we see the police coming out and talk about no discretion. When, you know, I mean, as everyone and their dog has observed, when it was, you know, skiing holidays that were the big problem, there was no resort to police then. We didn't see anyone in, to, in the Turat clusters uh, policed into their own homes. Yes, and musical soirees at Geelong Grammar. <laughs> yeah, well, we all enjoy a nice soiree. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and also people um, leaving the city at the notice of the, the lockdown covering the whole of the greater Melbourne area. Yeah. And then apparently there were there were traffic jams of people leaving the city to go to their holiday homes. Yeah, I mean, it was really striking. The day that they locked down those towers, I happened to be in Kensington and I could walk down the street, the friend I was visiting lived on, and watch, you know, white people in Kensington loading their cars with their belongings, clearly to get out of the area before they were unable to. Uh, and then at the end of the same street, I could look at the dozens and dozens of police uh, locking in the, the tower residence. It was an incredibly stark illustration of the differences of kind of class and the ways that public housing tenants are treated in this state. Yeah, as I said earlier, it's stigmatisation of them and they would never do this, as you said, in a, in a block in Turek or something if a, if a spate of COVID-19 occurred there. I mean, it really felt like something out of like a, a bad 1980s B-grade science fiction movie. The police locking in poor people in their infectious high-rise buildings uh, mm-hmm. to protect the, the, you know, relatively wealthy white people living outside. That was something that was mentioned in the um, forum that Vic Socialists organised, was that um, residents were saying the lack of protective gear and the lack of, of information made it seem like they're stopping people from coming in and out of these blocks. They're not concerned about whether it spreads inside the block, but they're concerned about whether the people living in the estates spread it to the outside community nearby. Yeah, I mean, that was... I think that's totally correct. My feeling is that this isn't a measure to protect any of the residents. It's a, a measure to protect... the you know, the, the community, the, the people that the state cares about from the residents of the, the towers who are conceived as disposable. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, moving on, is there anything else um, that, well, I know it's been the big event in, in housing in the past uh, month or so, but housing with the Ace Action Group, have you got anything else on your plate? <laughs> we've, got, we've got a few things going on. A few, I thought you might have the odd thing on your plate, yeah. Well, can I can I have a little rant of my own about something personal? I'm I'm actually in the process of moving house at the moment, so I had to go to visit my new real estate agent. Um, I, I won't mention who that was um, to drop off the signed lease. And from their foyer, I could see into their meeting room, and up on the whiteboard in there, I could see what appeared to be training materials for their agents 
about how not to offer rent reductions to residents if they called up about their COVID-related income law. I guess I would break it down like I'm not surprised that they're doing that. I'm not surprised, of course, that agents are dogs who you can't trust and who are constantly trying to extract every possible dollar from vulnerable people. That's, that's their business. But I am surprised that they're so shameless about it. They didn't get the memo that, they're, that we're all supposed to be on the same side, that we're supposed to be sitting down at the table in good faith to bargain about these things and share these losses. That is the government's policy. And every tenant organisation in the state, in the country, jumped up and down saying, well, that's ridiculous. There's a power imbalance here. You can't just ask people to sit down at the table with their landlords and think they're going to get a fair shake. And uh, the agents, you know, might as well have put a sign out to say, don't bother asking for a rent reduction, you won't get one. Yeah. I heard from a client the other day who approached their agent about a rent reduction because they had lost uh, income because of COVID-19. And the agent offered them a deferral rather than a reduction, said, look, we'll, we'll put off your payments until later. Now, the government will tell you, consumer affairs will tell you that's not the idea. You're not supposed to do that. That's not what's supposed to be happening. Um, so the tenant said, well, you know, I can't afford to pay it any better then. And the agent said, oh, no, just, you know, sign up for this and then you'll be able to get the extra rent assistance so there'll be no problem for you. Mm. The Victorian government has a scheme which is supposed to assist people who have negotiated in good faith, a needed rent reduction. Mm. Um, and this agent just saw it as a way to convince the tenant to sign up to this unfavourable agreement. The tenant did sign up to it and then found out that the rent assistance she was entitled to wouldn't cover the amount that she was she was losing on the deal. Wow. It's just an absolutely shameless grab for cash by agents who refuse to negotiate in good faith and who are actively training themselves not to negotiate in good faith. The government needs to recognise that this is an absolute failure of a scheme in the specific ways they were told it would fail. Uh, and if they want people to get actual rent reductions, they need to introduce a scheme that will deliver actual rent reductions. Or conversely, move the blackboard out of sight so people can't see it. That's what I mean. The agents don't even know that they're supposed to be pretending to negotiate in good faith. Like, that's all I expect from them. I don't expect them to actually negotiate in good faith, but to pretend they think they should. Let's pretend. <laughs> oh, dear. Look, also, there's been stories about the fact that because people are home, they're using a lot more power. Um, are you getting feedback about problems with electricity bills, etc., from from clients? Um, I don't know if that's really trickled through to us. Consistently, that's one of the main reasons that people report to us that they're, you know, that people come to us in housing crisis because their utility bills are making the, the cost of living and in, in conjunction with their rent unsustainable. Um, that's a huge problem for a lot of our clients. Yeah. <laughs> not, to, not to make everything about me, but I know our electricity bill was really high, uh, our most recent one. So, yeah, I'm sure that will be something that's coming through to us as well. There's a lot of costs that, I mean, this is kind of like a, a workers' rights issue, but there's a lot of costs that are just being deferred to workers from the crisis of people working from home because there's not only um, utilities, but there's also internet and um, the cost of setting up a home office if people don't have home offices and things. So, yeah, there's that, that kind of, um, there's a push on, on lots of fronts to just transfer the cost of the coronavirus onto workers and renters and get and get them to, to cover it at the same time as like anything the government does is like, oh, you can get a tax relief or we'll give you money through the, your, your business and then that doesn't come down to the, the workers or, you know, you get 
a rate reduction and that doesn't come through to renters. So Yeah, absolutely. And I mean also I guess the not monetary costs so much, but the impact on workers of of working out of their living spaces. You know, I know a lot of people who are working out of their bedrooms, you know, there's not a convenient extra space in the home that they yep. can use as an office. And, you know, I was talking to a friend who works for a family violence helpline and doing that work from your bedroom is is deeply so tough yeah there's there's that workers are just bearing now absolutely and there's not a lot spoken about it in the sense that people talk about them like there's some initiatives and and conversation around mental health for people since there might be in isolation but i don't think the same um considerations about the way that working from your bedroom affects your mental health yeah absolutely yeah. I mean, just just to bring it round again, I mean, that, that is something that workers should be negotiating through their unions if you're a union member. Right. I know, a lot, you know, I know that ASU has been pretty active in, in talking to its members or creating opportunity for members to talk about what sort of supports and what sort of health and safety measures people need. Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, if, if you're a worker in that situation, then I, I guess the answer is always to, to talk to your union. And if you're not a member of the union, now would be a great time to look into joining your union. <laughs> Now, I cannot imagine why not. I mean, I guess there are, you know, industries where that's much harder. But, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine trying to get through these times when workers are, are being exploited in so many new and, and dangerous ways. New and creative ways, yeah. And there's continuing moves by industry, including the building industry, in fact, to get rid of um, number of hours per day and penalty rates if you work more than the usual. So, and that they want that to continue post-virus. So they're really... Really, it is quite important that people all be in their unions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, capital loves to use a crisis to push the push its own agenda, and they're they're definitely doing that at the moment. Just an item that uh, occurred. I don't know if you caught up with it or not, Shane. But a a seventy four year old bloke who has uh, vascular dementia in the McKellar Centre in North Geelong. He just come back there after spending eight weeks in hospital following surgery for a broken leg. And on Friday, he, he was obviously going out of his head with the dementia in, a, in an episode, but the cops turned up and tasered him, a 74-year-old in a nursing home. Did you catch up with that one? Oh, no, I hadn't heard that. It's, it's so shocking, isn't it? I mean, I think people in Australia often look at the Black Lives Matter protests in America and think, you know, oh, it's a, it's a good thing that our police are okay, that we don't have these problems. But, you know, there, there are massive systemic and structural problems with police violence in this country as well. Uh, which is, you know, just another reason why the, the resort to police in place of public health measures is so distressing here. Yeah. His wife said that he could become agitated, obviously, but surely they could have found a better way. She said following the incident, her husband's dementia had gone up a level and he was now, quote, a mess. So uh, it's quite awful. That's really awful. It's just extraordinary, isn't it? Unfortunately, a common um, occurrence, an example of police actually escalating mm. a situation rather than de-escalating. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so in the in the last minute that we have left, Shane, any other news from Housing for the Aged Action Group? Well, maybe I'll just give out our contacts. If you're an older person with a, a housing issue in Victoria, please get in touch and we'll see if there's anything that we can do to help. Uh, it's 9654 7389. Yeah, whether it's COVID related or not, give us a call and we'll see what we can do to help you out. And what is older by your... Oh, 50 or older. Sorry, great question. Yeah, cool. Thanks. So Shane there from Housing for the Age Action Group and you're listening to City Limits on 3CR Community Radio. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for having me. 
Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager, or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Okay, back on City Limits, and, um, and Meg, you've teed this one up. We've got, we've got Howard Morosi from the How Is Your Housing with the Aged Act. I thought he's from Prince of Public Housing. Uh, get it right, Kevin. And also, uh, we've got Meg. Uh... Wake up, Kevin. Yeah, so Howard is joining us, obviously, and also with him is Dr. Sam Liedlich, who uh, is a doctor who's been associated with some of the stuff that's been happening at the housing estates. So thank you to you both for joining us. Thanks, Meg. Yeah, thanks for having us. Did you want to start, Howard? I think we'll kick off with Sam, actually. So, Sam, do you want to give us a bit of background about your work and qualifications? Uh, yeah, sure. So, I'm a psychiatrist. I've worked in the inner city for the last 10 or so years and with um, patients in first at the Melbourne Assessment Prison on Spencer Street and then after that with um, homeless people and people in public housing through two teams at Northwestern Mental Health. One is called City Team 1A. The other one is a very interesting team called the Homeless Outreach Mental Health Service, which is run on a housing first policy, which essentially means that uh, it takes in homeless patients. And then the very first thing it does, the main priority is get them a house. All our concerns are sort of um, made subservient to that because we know that the very best treatment for anybody who's got housing stress is to eliminate the housing stress. And so by that, I mean not just getting homeless people a house, but also allowing people who are in public housing to not feel infinitely precarious and like there's always uh, the threat of summary eviction or around the corner or because the facilities they're provided with are inadequate, that they feel that they're only somewhat in a home and that sort of thing. So that's, um, that's my background. I also live one block from the North Melbourne Towers. I'm on Canning Street, so I'm, I can see 76 Canning from my place. And so that's why when this new crisis started, I went down there and got more involved. I'm not working with either of those teams at the moment. I'm doing my PhD at the University of Melbourne and teaching at Royal Melbourne Hospital but only doing a little bit of clinical work. But I, I went down there to try and volunteer my psychiatric expertise. But then also, as I just said, the bigger issue within the psychiatric problems that come up in public housing are just the housing issues anyway. So I wanted to help feed people and make sure that they felt supported by the community. Were you allowed in? Uh, not allowed into the towers, no. But I was around the towers and then I was mostly working with the, and still am, with the Australian Muslim Social Services Association. Mm -hmm. And they were in contact with rep representatives in each of the towers and they were getting them food. And um, my uh, partner and I did a big food drive and uh, managed to collect tonnes of groceries and material items that added um, to their already massive effort. I mean, they're the real heroes of this crisis, the way that they organised so quickly and they managed to marshal such a huge mm. community effort at the Muslim Social Services Association. Um, that, I mean, they were supporting people in a lot of different ways. 
with material donations, but then also, for instance, so I was aware that there were some local pharmacies who couldn't get medicines into the towers just for the, their usual patients, just the people they usually see. They've got a routine with them where they provide them with daily, weekly or monthly prescriptions. And they, they said to me, oh, we can't get things into the towers and nobody's told us anything. DHHS hadn't told them anything. They hadn't made any provisions for those medicines getting into the towers. And so I put them in contact with the Muslim Social Services Association and they managed to get things into the towers until eventually DHHS did start making um, provisions for that sort of thing, which was many days into the lockdown. Mm. The Muslim Social Services Association has definitely been, there's been a, a lot of information and especially on social media and, and elsewhere about the huge effort that they made to coordinate resources, including translating information into the languages that the people uh, speak in the uh, housing estates. Uh, and mm. the, the thing that I had observed as well from watching this was that there seemed to be a real challenge in um, actually getting those resources into residence because of the presence of police. Yeah. I mean, let's call them AMSA now, just mm. for short. The Muslims, the AMSA, they were, they've um, encountered roadblocks from police, from firefighters and from DHHS at almost every turn but they still managed to organise this really cohesive, really impressive response. And, you know, they had a car park and a warehouse just full of food and they were packing and sorting groceries for every, for every resident in the towers. And they, they had sort of a human conveyor belt to the bottom of the towers. And then at the tower, a representative was coming out and getting it so there was no cross-contamination into the towers. And it was all really well organised, but still DHHS were saying, oh, this is, there's a risk of cross-contamination. And they, they were putting up impediments all over the place, really just because they were embarrassed that a community organisation and an ad hoc coalition of community members and other organizations was able to do a much better job than they were but you know really i think the evidence is there that dhhs wasn't trying to do a good job they they're not that they were shown up by amsa but their role is not to do a good job their role at least implicitly is to degrade public housing to neglect the residents of public housing so that you know they can contribute to the decades long tradition of doing precisely that to public housing uh, on the way to it all being privatised and the disadvantaged and the marginalised being moved out of the city or made homeless and all of us being made to feel as if we're walking a knife's edge and that if we make one misstep, we can end up in the meat grinder. And that's, you know, that's precisely why a psychiatrist ends up involved in housing defence in the first place is because I kept being asked to treat people with medicines when what they needed was a house to be made to feel secure and, and to be respected. Sam, on that point, we've talked earlier in the program about this being a stigmatisation of public housing because they'd never do it anywhere else, would they? Mm. On an over-broad level, what sort of impact does this have on the people in those communities when this sort of thing happens? Yeah, well, that's right. That, there's a, the stigmatisation of public housing is very is a very concerted effort, really. And the the effect that this has is sort of twofold. It, it intensifies what's usually happening, and then it also adds that extra bit of powerlessness. I mean, how they usually feel, you know, is marginalised, neglected. They're sort of derided as living on handouts. They're afraid of being arbitrarily kicked out for any number of sort of Kafkaesque reasons. 
if they speak out, they can be evicted. If they have too many people in, you know, they try to extend help and to their family, they can be evicted. They're really treated like children who can't be given things to, to you know, use on their own, essentially. And they're made to feel like uh, parasites by the media and by, you know, other strong voices. But that's, of course, to obscure the fact that the real parasites are the developers and the banks who want to swoop in on that public land, who want to have a monopoly on dwellings, and who, like I say, want to make sure that we all feel precarious so that we have to work and we have to work for a pittance. Um, and then how they feel now is, you know, people came home from work, shut the door, and then went back out to go and get something from Woolies and found out that they weren't allowed out of their home. They had no warning. They had no idea. So it's just another sort of feeling of insecurity, of precarity, where they feel powerless. They are literally imprisoned suddenly and without explanation. Uh, and then also... They're locked into these dwellings that are not fit for purpose. They're small places that have been overburdened with people. There are some families who can only make use of the space by rotating sleeping arrangements. And, and also, I mean, no family is really designed to be imprisoned together. Families really, I mean, this just as a general psychiatric point, I guess, families don't operate on being locked in a room all at the same time. And so uh, the family unit is made to do something it's also not designed to do. Mm. So all of that leads to all of the various stresses you can imagine. But then as um, my friend, the psychologist in Kensington, David Ferraro says, every depression is a failed revolution. And this feeling like not only are things not going to get better, but at any moment it's going to get worse and if anything impacts this, the community of Melbourne as a whole, it's going to impact the tower residents the most. And that's exactly how they're going to, you know, they're going to be feeling. They feel like second-class citizens who are going to bear the brunt of every problem. And so, I, you know, I imagine there's a lot of depression that's going to come out of that. Mm. Sam, so what, what did you think about the justification for lockdown in terms of clusters? So the, the government's saying there was a cluster of infections yeah. in the tower wasn't present. So how, how would you, as a doctor, how would you respond to that? Well, so I'm not an epidemiologist, but uh, I mean, what we do know is that there are 53, there was, a, there was a very high density of cases in 33 alpha but they didn't know that before they did this blanket testing. They obviously had some signal that suggested some spike in the area, but because there were zero cases in eight of the nine towers, their application of that information was already clearly erroneous. The other thing that proves that it was not purely an objective epidemiological decision is the fact that Arden Gardens is a private tower directly across the road from 76 Canning. It has similar density to the public towers. It shares many of the same facilities. There are at least three laundromats on Melrose Street that are used by both Arden Gardens residents and residents of the public towers. There's a Woolworths, there's an IGA, there are two cafes, there are hairdressers. All those facilities are used by Fiat Gardens people and people in the public towers. And yet Arden Gardens wasn't locked down. My house didn't have a police officer outside it, even though I'm only a block from there and I use all those same facilities also. So epidemiologically, Arden Gardens and the public towers are a single unit. I can't see one can always be corrected, but I can't see any justification for them being treated differently other than classism. Mm. And what about the racism aspect? We know that the um, AMSA, the Muslim Association, has been active. Mm. What's the 
racial or ethnic composition of the towers? I actually don't, I don't know the full numbers, except anecdotally, because I've worked around there a lot. There's a lot of people from Africa. There are a lot of people of the Muslim faith and uh, there are a lot of Vietnamese people also. I should, I should mention as well that AMSA did a really brilliant effort providing for all peoples. They weren't only providing for people of the Muslim faith and they put a lot of effort into translating material into Vietnamese as well, things like that. But I don't know. I don't know that it is primarily an issue of racism. I think race is used as a dog whistle for classism in this instance. But like the example I just used of Arden Gardens, there are a lot of people in there who are new to Australia and who are from many of the same places that the people of the public towers are from. The only difference is that they've invested in private dwellings and, you know, and are good little boys and girls according to uh, the capitalist mode of production, whereas the people in the public towers, uh, in inverted commas, should be grateful, um, are living on handouts and, uh, you know, supposedly budgets. And when you and I know that none of that's true. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of the show and we're going to have to wind up. We could talk about this longer, but we're going to have to um, stick to our one hour um, we've had a very full show. Really appreciate your input as well, Sam. And and before we finish up, Howard, did you have anything you wanted to comment in terms of defending and extending public housing and, and what we've seen in this instance? Well, I'll just mention that uh, not so much the public housing advocacy, advocacy groups, but the um, Stand Together Against Racism has done some some work. They've had uh, some uh, a webinar and they've gotten a number of the... Um, residents involved talking about it and has also um, appeared on the uh, internet voices from the block so it looks like the, the residents themselves have been organizing to advocate by the internet as well so uh, from all the reports the residents on in the towers are actually uh, do have a very strong community as we know and they're also quite able to represent themselves obviously through through AMSAR, but, but independently as well. So good networks and um, good uh, self-defence. Yep. Yeah, there's a heap of stuff on housing. We could have talked about how we won't, but just next month we've been onto it. But two weeks ago on our transport program, we mentioned Arden, speaking of Sam talking about Arden, that the Arden station that's going to be there after the in the new metro system, the, the state's planning a massive commercial residential development around it. But again, we're looking at what's going to be a private development on public land, I suspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know, Howard, do you know the numbers there of community housing versus public? I actually haven't heard about it. We do know that there is actually there's an issue at Flemington, although the towers, I don't, I don't think, are actually going to be uh, developed. The walk-ups, I think, have already been demolished and there's an issue uh, with the open space between the towers which might actually be taken for um, for some of the new development, which is replacing the, the walk-ups. And, of course, the walk-ups probably not going to be public housing. I haven't heard for sure, but they're referred to as social housing. We know so far there's been no commitment to new public housing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll get into all of that next month then, I guess. Look, thanks to both of you for coming on today. And it's been a full-on program, but it's certainly been a, a major issue, unfortunately. Yeah, right. Thanks. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you to you both. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.